Knuckleball's the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say right. I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. Shah fall to that. We're here now with the Sunday papers for the afternoon. If you're listening to us earlier, you may have heard us speaking about the magic of the FA Cup and the various different locations around England that we're hearing about, sometimes for the first time and also places that we might be a bit more familiar with. But I did get one text in from James who told me that Harrogate is to Leeds what Oren Moore is to Galway. Make of that what you will. That means probably Harrogate is where the Leeds people go for their fresh walks and possibly where property prices are going up because the city slickers are moving out to get their nice sea views. Um, But like I said, we're with the uh, paper review here first. But before we go and chat the papers, I'll just give you a quick overview of what's in all the papers. Beginning with the Sunday Times, David Walsh has a piece on the back page there. And on the front page, speaking of the magic of the FA Cup, Toon Raiders. And that is, of course, lowly Cambridge pile on the misery for Newcastle. At least they can concentrate on the league now is a little sub-headline. That's, of course, referring to their 1-0 win over Newcastle yesterday. And on the side there, Pogba to miss another six weeks with injury. And there's lots of people out there probably might say, well, that probably won't do much harm. Now, the Sunday Mirror back page, we have a picture here of Virgil van Dijk looking very serious. And it's he, the headline is Lucky, Lucky City. And that's Van Dijk reckons Liverpool and Chelsea have it tougher than Pep Stars. And he has told runaway leaders, Premier League, lead, Premier League leaders, Manchester City, that they have gotten lucky this season. I feel that's a bit like what we'd call in GAA world, rousing the opposition and putting something to put up on the dressing room wall. Now, the sun on Sunday their back page also refers to Man United and that says Moan United turmoil at Old Trafford Moan United a good um, headline there Maguire this cannot go on Ron's agent flies in for crisis talks and Macari was axe for rebels so it appears all the crack is happening in Old Trafford if we're to believe the Sunday papers this weekend the Sunday people, the Irish Sunday people also have Cambridge on their back page as well. They came, they saw, they conquered. Great headline and it's beautiful photos here of jubilant scenes of um, celebrations of Joe Ironside and it was the Cambridge hero for his 56th minute goal. Newcastle nil, Cambridge won. And also Virgil van Dijk is also referred to here. City? Question mark. Lucky. It's a bit like remember Jay in the in-betweeners. There's a little feeling of that about these headlines. And also Man United alluded to as well. Maguire, don't blame the boss. It's our fault. And it feels like maybe perhaps the players are beginning to take some responsibility there. The Irish Mail on Sunday, we have a big headline on the back there, I'm sick of our failure, and above that is a photo of all the action last night in Tom and Park. Monsters win over Ulster, 14-man Reds find their fire to stun Ulster, and like I said, I'm sick of our failure. Maguire admits United's players letting down fans, and a small box on the right-hand side. Cluxton era is officially at an end. That's a piece by Shane McGrath. And the write-up of that is Desi Farrell brought news that effectively brings one of the greatest careers in GA history to a close yesterday when he confirmed that Stephen Cluxton will not be a part of the Dublin senior football team this season. The circumstances of his departure remain thick and a mystery but after his non-appearance in last season's unfulfilled All-Ireland defence Farrell's comments after yesterday's Auburn Cup win over Offaly were no surprise and I don't think that really was a surprise for anyone. I think the surprise announcement would be, would be the opposite there that Cluxton was back. And the Sunday World. We also, speaking of Cluxton, he's there taking off the back page there in the Sunday World. 
best of clucks no fanfare as hero Cluxton bows out say, says Dobbs Farrell and that's a piece by Sean McGoldrick and there is a photo there of Stephen Cluxton when he was in action goodbye to the hill Dublin boss Desi Farrell confirms Stephen Cluxton has retired from inter-county football and that really is the end of an era to anyone who's been watching football over the last nearly generation or so and finally on my hands here I have the Sunday Independent Sports Supplement and we have a, another photo from the rugby there and it's Munster hit back and that's again Munster's victory over Ulster in Thoman Park in terrible conditions last night and new era beckons as Cluxton stays away Farrell confirms ex-captain won't be involved for 2022 and there's also a really interesting piece at the back as well written by um, Eamon Sweeney anyone who was interested in the darts last weekend you'll all know who uh, this gentleman is right and of course and um, we'll be talking about that I think and lots of other stories in the papers over the coming hour or so like I said I'm joined by Kleena Foley and by Dr Katie Liston I was asking uh, the ladies earlier in the programme how their Christmas was it probably feels like a long time ago Nailies how, how was your Christmases are you over it now <laughs> The tree is still up. Is that a bad or a good sign? That's a good sign. I think all the light in January, all the better. I only took mine down yesterday, Kleena, and that was under duress. I was told I wasn't allowed to keep it up. So I spent the day cleaning, taking it. But I'd happily leave it up to like the evenings get a bit longer. But apparently that's frowned upon. No, 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 no. I've, I have neighbours who, two houses who left their lights on their outside tree all of the last two years to give us all a bit of cheer. And I think, is it, is it a Spanish tradition, I think, as well, that they do, that they leave the lights up for a particularly long time. But I love to see them and I think, leave them up as long as you can. Don't worry about it. How was your Christmas, Katie? It was good. Thank you. Um, and Happy New Year and Happy Nolag Naman. It was probably probably a quieter one um, and I dare say that's been the theme for, for most people. My sister and my sister-in-law both unfortunately contracted the lurgy so at the very last minute what was you know a planned wonderful family Christmas dinner obviously within the regulations of households everybody just disbanded to their own houses and had a, a quiet Christmas but um, it's the case for many people and I suppose we can hope now and fingers crossed we're a bit more optimistic that we're getting towards the worst end of this pandemic all being well yeah hopefully I mean famous last words but all the signs appear to be cautiously pointing toward you know hopefully we're at I don't want to use the word end because the last time we said this we had another attack left of field but hopefully 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 all fingers toes everything possibly crossed that it looks like and thankfully with this wave while some people are getting sick it doesn't appear to be anywhere near as bad as it was you know thank the Lord for vaccines and all that we'll be discussing later with a certain gentleman who plays tennis very very well but I think we were discussing earlier ladies what stories we wanted to talk about and I think a story that stood out to all of us who opened up the papers this morning is in the Sunday Times and Kleena I might let you describe this it's just so lovely and I just think if anyone's at home if you haven't bought a paper yet today go out and get yourself the Sunday Times and show it to yourself if you're somebody who needs a little kick for a little bit of motivation or show it to maybe one of your children if you feel they're, they're lacking confidence or lacking a bit of belief because you'll you'll lap the story up and you realise with a little bit of luck let's not forget that we do need a bit of luck and a bit of help from, from people who are in positions stronger than ours who knows where you might get to Kleena do you want to take it away there? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I, I, we all need uplifting stories at the moment, and particularly uplifting stories of sport, given that you know the papers are always so... And particularly at the moment, just seem to be full of bad news with COVID cancellations and the Djokovic story and Man United and whatever else you have. But Peter O'Reilly has a beautiful story, a really uplifting uh, feature in the Sunday Times today, and it is about a young man called uh, Muzamil Sherzad. And he is originally from Afghanistan, but at this minute in time, he's in Guyana with the Irish under-19 crew 
cricket team who um, begin their World Cup campaign uh, next weekend. Um, but he has the most extraordinary story. Uh, it's not extraordinary to anybody who has knows anybody who's direct provision, I'm sure, in Ireland. Um, but it is a, it is just a remarkable story. Uh, when particularly when we take it back to the last uh, last paragraph, and I'm not going to give the whole story here, but it's safe to say that this young man has come from Pakistan, through Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, Bulgaria, Serbia, where he spent four months in a camp, a refugee camp, uh, Par- Milan, Paris, Cherbourg, Dublin. That's how this man got to, young man got to Ireland. Um, he had, he has relations living in Tipperary. Um, and he comes from Jalabad in the northeast of Afghanistan. And anybody who's been following the news over recent years knows the name of that city. Um, and he puts it brilliantly, Peter, when he says, uh, "Teenage, where teenage boys must live with the prospect of conscription to one warring faction or another. When Muzi, as they call him, escaped, he did so with the goal of finding his maternal uncle in Ireland and opening a path for his widowed mother and three siblings to follow him here. And he talks to him about his perilous 8,000 metre kilometre journey to Ireland. Uh, it is an extraordinary story and ex- deeply, deeply touching. Um, and you know, we hear so much about the direct provision and we hear so much about refugees and people seeking asylum in Ireland. Um, and just when you hear the true story of somebody and and how real it is and also about how sport has become such an important part in his life, it's amazing. And uh, Muzi saw a post on Cricket Ireland's Facebook page. It's just funny, isn't it, how social media now works in sport and the power of it. Um, and it said there was a competition, find a fast bowler. So he turned up, uh, he went from Mullinahome to Balrothery. Uh, he turned up basically at a trial. And Peter O'Reilly, as the journalist says himself, he saw him bowl the following summer in Sydney Parade when he took the new ball for North Kildare against Pembroke because he's been playing for North Kildare. And he just said he's relatively slight but bowls with a classical side on action he has something about him it's an amazing story really really touching story but also just so true and also so important what you said Marge has about the importance of other people helping other people as well like he he wouldn't have got here he needs lifts from Mulnahone he didn't even he couldn't settle in Mulnahone when he did get to Mulnahone um uh, to live with relatives, he found it very difficult to settle there. He didn't speak English. He had all the usual, you know, the uh, remarkable and un- un- difficult complications that any refugee has coming to a new country. But people have helped him all along the way, and I think that's the power of sport. Yeah, it was. Um, it was just such a lovely piece to read. But I think, Katie, for me, what stood out for this, and maybe when I was younger, I didn't have the cop on. I might have read this and said. Jesus talent and wasn't he lucky and that's where it got him there's plenty of talented people who've been left out because the system or the world we live in doesn't support them and what stands out now with me with a little bit more maturity and maybe a bit more cop on is that yes he had the talent yes he had the skills yes he was motivated but he needed people to help him get to where he needed to be and I suppose that's that's still happening in all different kind of sports not just in Ireland but all around the world yeah, I mean, t- today's papers as, as a total, um, Moira, probably are a really nice illustration of sport being a microcosm of wider social issues, especially elite sport. I mean, and let's face it, we are talking about that the talent-driven ended of cricket looking for some new talent coming through. We'll get to Jokovic and probably others in, in a few minutes. 
But what happens in sport when you move from grassroots to elite level is you have this expansion of connections with people, social connections. And much of that we know happens very organically in Ireland because we have a sport that is so indigenous to us. And in a sense, it's much more than sport because it's part of who we are. It's this community sport. And obviously at the elite level, it becomes much more than that now and that the demands made on the Gaelic players are probably akin to professional players. But you can see in this piece the way Peter has captured this young man's attempts to try to reach out and the ways in which people have met him in reaching out. Probably in all of it here, it's it's not just what stands out to me, it's not just his consistent attempts to consistently try and do better and get to this goal that he had for himself. But quietly in the background, Peter mentions, I think it's maybe halfway through the article, about the, the disjuncture that Cleana describes, he found himself, he wasn't really settling in Tipperary and indeed relatives said to him, there's no cricket here in Ireland. And let's face it, there wouldn't be many that would know probably of cricket in the rural areas of Ireland. But it's his social worker. And Peter says just very quickly in a sentence, his social worker found him a foster family in Carl. Wasn't prime cricketing territory, but the implication is it was near to Dublin because this young man recognised through the, the social media outlets that he wanted to try and, you know, respond to one of the, the calls for finding a fast bowler. And he says himself, I registered myself. Now, that is in many ways the strength, if you want to call it that, the power, Tina used that term of sport in terms of making relationships, enabling people to make connections. Now, it has a flip side as well, because it can be as exclusionary as it can be inclusionary. I think that's where you're coming from, Maurity, when you talk mm-hmm. about the fact that it's far more than just the individual look. It's then what are the resources that people and groups have to be able to avail of those connections. And when it comes to discussing power, we'll see it in all of the articles today. There are some groups that have more access than others. And inevitably, we're always trying to look to those that are excluded a little bit more to see can we achieve equity, especially in elite sport, because it's so uneven. Yeah, for sure. And like we see that in even sports media and it's changing, thankfully, bit by bit. But any area, be if you're in any way different, sometimes you need somebody who's in the fold to open the door and bring you into the circle. And once you're in the circle, it's fine. But it can be quite difficult sometimes to make your way in when you don't have those connections. And in one sense, maybe he was lucky that maybe he landed in Ireland where he found some people who might actually listen to him. But not only did they listen, they were able to point him in the direction of this might help you and you might go that way and I might know a man down the road but you mightn't get that perhaps in a bigger country where we have fear of those connections and they can work for you Kleena and they can work against you because if you don't have those mates it can be difficult but it seems that he this guy found his path regardless yeah and just imagine the resilience of him like he he, he describes the he got into the back of a truck uh, in uh, in in Sherbrooke and uh, and when the truck came off the road somewhere i presume uh, somewhere after Ross Lair or Dublin um he knocked on the wall the driver came out and he ran he just got out of the back of the truck and he ran um and then obviously you know made connections use social media did what he could there's a great there's a great line at the end of it um, the guy coaching him now a guy called Albert Vandermeer who's Cricket Ireland's talent pathway manager is also the under 19 manager part of that team he said uh, when they were flying over to Guyana he said um, some of his teammates were teasing um uh, they were they were teasing Muzzy and saying, "Oh, you know, it was, it was his first trip on a plane. Was he going to be nervous?" And Vandermeer says, "I'm thinking this kid is hidden on trucks, crawled through jungles, 
uh, as a 14 year old to make it over borders been a stowaway slept in public parks so I don't think an airplane journey is going to phase him but it's that I mean it's really interesting and we'll talk about Djokovic later on but it is really interesting you know to to see where people's strength of character come through and where they've come from because remember you know we we'll talk about his Djokovic's background in in Serbia you know where he where yeah, he wasn't also a fairy was, tale either no no stuck in a war torn country and had had horrendous um, experiences as well so I think it's very interesting to see it but it's it's about I suppose just to have the tenacity to keep battling for that is just remarkable, you know. And also, I think that when we hear the story of asylum seekers, refugees, and we can understand it in our own context, um, it helps us to understand the plight that they have. And just to, like, um, he met a guy called Husnay Marouf, who's from North Kildare Cricket Club, and he was the guy who said to him, if he could get a bus to the Red Cow Inn, there would be a lift to Balradri. And I just think, like, even hearing it in that context and knowing, you know, he had to, he has to get from Tipperary to Dublin. Then he has to get somebody to pick him up in Dublin. He's after getting his driver's license now, and he's saving up all the money he can um, work it as a pizza delivery uh, to to buy a car. Um, but it is a fantastic story, and I think it really does bring through um, just the pure humanity of sport. Really, it's funny as well. Like uh, Katie, when I was reading it, and I was thinking, like, geez, that's a bit of a journey to try and get from Tipperary to the Red Cow and get a lift. And I was thinking, hold on a minute, catch yourself on. This guy's made the journey from Afghanistan to Ireland. <laughs> This is not a bother to him. <laughs> and it's, it's in that regard, it's actually not unusual. I mean, that, that kind no, of section no. of Peter O'Reilly's piece took me right back to my own trajectory through sport um, in an era when, you know, I would cycle maybe 10 or 15 miles, then get a lift for another 20 miles to get to county training and then do the same return journey backwards. Now, those were in days, I think, when parents were happier to let a young person a young woman especially cycle on the side of a road for 10 or 15 miles before getting a lift and moving onwards and backwards but it does bring out the consistent story of sport and social capital and the extent to which relations built positively in sport can enable young people to try to reach their aspirations and and his story is quite extraordinary kudos to peter i have to say to bring the humanity out in that piece and i think we all wish him well the 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 young man on his cricket journey yeah absolutely and like i said if you haven't gone out to buy a paper yet today and you just or you haven't bothered it is well worth your time to go out and pick it up and just read it for that article alone and just maybe count ourselves count our blessings a little bit how comfy we are that we have a nice comfy armchair hopefully to read the paper Um, and then when you turn the page then that's um it's novak djokovic Katie, who's um, looking out at us, looking very intense with his um, holding on to his racket. And I think, obviously, he's a polarising individual, but when we tear back all the layers, not much different to um, to our previous story. He's just, uh, he's a product of um, not the best childhood either, you know, through no fault of his own, living in a war-torn country. No, and probably not surprising anymore. I mean, he's getting a lot of coverage across all the, the, the mm, papers. I everywhere. Have at the moment, the size of my desk is limiting, so I have two main <laughs> ones in front of me. Um, I'm looking at, I think, the Independent, page 14, and then in the, the Times, it's kind of 14, 15, split across a double. Yeah, and it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, David Walsh's piece on the back of the Sunday Times. Uh, so the, the picture you're referring to, I think, is the, the Sunday Times mm. one initially. Yeah, and then he's on he's on the back page of the David Walsh's piece, smiling with yeah, his wife. and then... Tommy Conlon is is the writer in The Independent. And I think you might argue, probably if you were reading this afresh, there's a slightly different take to 
Djokovic and certainly in the tone of how the writers are approaching him. So you can see, I suppose there's a continuum of, of those and probably not just in the sports sections to be fair because this has become a worldwide issue now of those that are um, lauding him for his attempts to pursue his dreams and I suppose siding with what appears to be some confusion around the clarity of guidelines between the state and the federal guidelines in Australia through to those that are saying, well, you know, there are consequences to your actions and now you have to live with these consequences. But it's a lovely illustration, I think, of the layers to what's happening in elite sport because on the individual level, you have this high-profile player, one of the leading tennis players, seeking, if I understand his career correctly, to probably usurp both Federer and Nadal for Grand Slam titles. And he's made that clear, I think, since he lost the, the, the last Grand Slam last year that he wants to get to this level and a lot of support behind him for that because the Australian Open is the first Grand Slam or the big the big event of the new year as you know so he's record breaking at a societal level then you can begin to see the the pressures and the lobbying that starts to come through around these high profile sports people because you have the mismatches I say or at least what appears to be a lack of clarity between state regulations uh, in Victoria, in Australia, and the border force regulations in terms of who's permitted into Australia. And in that, you have a microcosm of Tennis Australia trying then to use their diplomatic presence to communicate better with the Australian government on this and indeed the wider picture, and you can pick it up across the two pieces that I've read today, of representations made by Serbians at the Australian embassy in Serbia and no doubt vice versa with the fans outside um, where Jokovic is being held at the moment. So it brings out so many layers and certainly the the adverse start to his career brings more humanity to him as well, not unlike um, the young cricketer we've just discussed because he, as you rightly say, grew up in war-torn Serbia. Um, David Walsh talks about this a little bit more, I think, because he engages with Djokovic's own book called Serve to Win, where they had a basement shelter. They spent 78 consecutive nights when the, the city was being bombed. And Djokovic says in his own book and in his own words, something changed in me, in my family, in my people. We decided to stop being afraid. After so much death, so much destruction, we simply stopped hiding. And Walsh goes on to say the background and the mentality came from the experience and they're part of the reason Djokovic has been, for Walsh at least, one of um, his three favourites of the three greatest players of all time. But then when you read Tommy Conlon, you get a little bit more... Yeah, it I changes suppose, the perspective. Yeah, <laughs> tone changes a bit. And, and, and this is reflected, I think, in all the coverage at the moment because uh, Tommy Conlon says that... Jokovic has attracted a lot of attention because of what was claimed to be initially an anti-vaccine stance. Now, David Walsh appears to kind of caveat that by quoting Jokovic directly, who says, I was never anti-vaccine. What I was against was the imposition of vaccines um, because he says, you know, who am I to, to question those who have um, in the field of medicine have been saving lives around the world when it comes to vaccination? So I think he was... Uh, asserting, I guess, his rights to whether or not he would take the vaccine. But Tommy Conlon says by the time Jokovic landed in Melbourne, where the, the Grand Slam is being held, Jokovic was already carrying a lot more baggage than his tennis gear. So there's a nice a nice use of language to bring out humorous approach to it. He was one of the world's most famous anti-vaccine proponents. 
And at the time we're discussing this, and probably, I mean, we were 24 hours prior to these papers, at the time of, of the writing of the articles, we didn't have as much information as, be, as beginning to come out now about the case. And Tennis Australia are being a little bit more forthcoming since, with the caveat that I think that the adjourned case will be heard tomorrow in the Australian courts as to whether or not the banning of or the lifting of his visa, in a sense, will be will be stopped. And I was interested in what Tennis Australia have said in the last 24 hours. And this is on, it's quoted at least on page 15 of the Sunday Times. So just opposite that intense picture of Djokovic that you described, Moira. Mm. Um, and they say that it seems that they were aware of the differences between the guidelines that they have set in place, which is that if you've contracted COVID, you, you have a medical exemption, which is the, the sporting exemption, but the mismatch potentially between that and the border force, essentially the Australian border force. And so there has been communication prior to this, but Tennis Australia do make clear that it's not only Jokovic here, that it's a couple of other players also that have uh, been detained as a result of this, this mismatch. And Tennis Australia seem to be claiming that they've done everything that they can that they are, uh, they say, a person-centred or a player-centred organisation and that the treatment of the players, I think there's about four in total and we may well hear of more who fall within these categories, goes to the heart of the viability of the Australian Open. So there's clearly been, I suppose, diplomatic representations in the background, not only because of Jokovic, but because of the other players. But I imagine most of the focus from Tennis Australia is on Jokovic because he's a big draw. He's going for this record-breaking attempt. The Australian Open is the biggest Grand Slam of the year and I can certainly vouch to the event that it was. I was lucky enough to attend it maybe more than probably about 18 years ago now um, and it is a, an absolutely fantastic sporting spectacle albeit it will be a little bit reduced because of the COVID regulations at the moment and I think there's probably a bit more to come here in the, the legal case that's going to draw out this mismatch and whether or not Jokovic has either been caught in now a political controversy or indeed whether he may well have sought to use this lack of clarity in the guidelines to try to actually get into the Open itself, potentially knowing that there might well be some issues when he arrived in Australia. Well, we'll wait and see. There's plenty more we can say about this, which we will. We do just need to take a break for a few moments, but we will return to the subject and many more. Text us 53106 or tweet us at Off the Ball with your thoughts if you wish. Do stay with us. The paper review continues after this break. Faltarash could see off the ball, Nolik Naman live in Shalliv, could see Shacht Hlog Tanunanot Lumsa Mora Trasa Nihala. And joining me on the paper review, we're going to rejoin actually the discussion about Novak Djokovic because there's so many layers to it. And I'm joined by uh, Dr. Katie Liston and Kleena Foley on our paper review. And Kleena, I might come to you here because Katie has given us just before the break there, gave us a really good rundown of the multiple layers. But you could tell she's a lecturer because she was able to break it down <laughs> in a few minutes, whereas I think I'd be blathering on for hours. And if I had anyone in front of me, they still wouldn't know any different what was going on. They'd, they'd still be as confused as they ever were. So Katie did a really good job there. Where do you fall down on this, Kleena, I suppose? Or where where did you lean toward in the paper? this morning 
Well, well um, I read a good piece of Barney uh, Rene yesterday in The Guardian, and the examiner had it as well, which was it, rather like some of the pieces like David Walsh today and, and some of them which are sort of, you know, equivocating and saying, well, you know, you have to understand where it comes from. Uh, Roy, Roy Curtis has a piece in, in Sunday World as well on, you know, world champions, you know, have this sort of, you know, me, me, me attitude and everything is, I do everything I can to be a champion. And, you know, that's how you have to think about people like him. But uh, the Mail on Sunday's coverage is interesting. And there's a few interesting um, news facts in it, I think, that are worth checking. I and mean, we'll find out more when the legal case uh, occurs. I think it's tomorrow in Australia. But um, the, Mike Dixon has a piece. They have a special report. So they have photos and everything showing that, like, Djokovic, we're not sure, but but he's de- he's declared that his first PCR test, or his legal team have, was was re- was, was recorded on December the 16th. But the Mail on Sunday have photos of him on December the 17th giving out trophies um, at his own uh, tennis centre in Belgrade. Then they have him on the 14th of December um, embracing players from Red Star in Belgrade. There was a EuroLeague basketball match on um, and uh, players tested positive after that. And also, um, I think on December the 16th, uh, he attends an event to unveil a stamp produced in his honour by the Serbian National Post Office. So they have lots of photo evidence of all of these things happening. But the thing that actually interests me probably most in the mail on Sunday, there's a couple of things. One, they're smart enough to get a Serbian sports writer to write a piece. It's just a short piece, but it's an interesting piece. Um, and and uh, Sazo Osmo, that reporter, does say, I mean, the biggest mistake Djokovic has made was, was he calls it a misstep total and absolute uh, stupid thing to do was announcing on his Twitter again before flying that he had an exemption that's what kicked all of this off of <laughs> course and alerted the authorities but he is he is being caught clearly Scott Morrison the, the Australian Prime Minister has obviously done a massive U-turn here um, they raise questions about the part being played if you like by the head um, of Australian tennis um, a guy called it'll come to me in a minute Craig Tilly and they point out that remember Australia has been at the centre of a few controversies in recent years this isn't the first one they had Sharapova there in 2018 paraded her before the draw even not long after she'd returned um, after serving um, a drugs ban and then there was the controversy of them um, continuing play when uh, the bushfires were there so it's not the first time and they're they're sort of questioning the the I suppose the the status of the of uh, of Tilly now and where he what his part to be played in this. But in Mike Dixon's piece, I think there's a really interesting thing in it because he says Djokovic's team say that Tennis Australia actually filled out his complex Australian travel declaration form for him. That's a really interesting piece if that comes out in the, in in their legal case. Um, because you know there's been so many people passing this ball and washing their hands of it um, that it is interesting to see what is actually factually going to happen to but I was be... interested in those pieces because they bring something new to it you know as opposed to opinion pieces mm. um, they do have a piece then shocked and confused Novak's night of hell uh, describing how he had an 8 hour airport ordeal they've never clearly um, queued for uh, certain uh, cheap flights uh, <laughs> that any of the rest of us nor indeed spent any time um, 
queuing for a PCR test. Yeah, queuing for PCR test are going to, a, to an Irish A and E at the moment, which are radically understaffed. Uh, so but you know, I just actually, think, yeah, to, it's, be, it's to be devil's advocate here for a minute, just for one point, because I know those pictures have been thrown around of Djokovic being at various events after apparently testing positive for COVID. But let's just assume, because we don't know this, he may have been a completely asymptomatic, had gone off for his PCR to travel, and then if it's anything like here, may have taken at least 24 or 48 hours for the result to come back to him. So we'll give him that, Kleena. But, um, yeah, but, but hold on. <laughs> but, but no, I'm going to throw this one out as well because Mike Dixon's point says, and it's something people may not know, the Serbian regulations dictate that people need to, to self-isolate for 14 days following a positive di- diagnosis. Oh yes, but what I'm saying is perhaps when he was out and about he hadn't got his result back yet. That's what I'm saying. And if he was asymptomatic he wouldn't have been isolating. Just to... You know, well, the te- well, I'm the, being well, kind the, here, Clean. I'm giving the man. Are, <laughs> well, that's the question they're asking. The question they're asking is, uh, do, when, when, when was the date of the test, and when did he get the results? They're the mm. interesting questions to be asked as well. Lots um, of lots look, of questions, Katie. Really, there aren't there that we're we probably won't get answers to until this hearing actually starts. And it's connected as well to probably wider discussions about the, the role of sport as a lightning rod in this pandemic. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if we go back a year or so, I think it's about a year, but honestly, my sense of time is conflated because of this pandemic. I mean, I remember thinking about the hubris of, the shameless hubris of, I think it might have been at last year's Australian Open, of players claiming that they, you know, were being hard done by because they were confined to their rooms for X number of days before playing. And, and thinking at the time, goodness me, we need to think about the wider picture here because there are families and businesses that are under extreme pressure and the, in some respects, you might argue a, a real privilege to be able to continue to pursue what is your job and also your aspiration to compete at the highest level in amongst all of this. And it's, it's a lightning rod for what's going on in the pandemic. Probably the best example of that for anybody who's going to read the papers today, Moriti, is on page 15 of the Sunday Times. So opposite the piece by Stuart Fraser on Jokovic is a short summary by uh, Tomás Hill López Menchero and the heading is Meet Sports Vax Skeptics. So you have another journalist connecting this to statements made by other players, either positively or less positively towards the pandemic. So there's a couple of examples from NFL, uh, Bayern Munich footballer, all male, I have to say as well, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, golfer, uh, rugby league player, NBA basketballer about what they've said, typically along an anti-vax line and then what happened subsequently. Um, so it's it's interesting for further reading and I, I think seeing the case tomorrow will be very revealing as well, I think, of how the constraints on Melbourne in particular are feeding into the way this case is being handled. Because, I mean, let's face it, Scott Morrison is running into an election quite soon, so he has done a bit of a U-turn. But in Melbourne in particular, I mean, I'm trying to remember because I deal with with colleagues in Australia and New Zealand regularly now. We're doing everything uh, by Zoom, as you as you probably know. I mean, it's something like 250, maybe 260 days mm, of a very lockdown, long, not just restrictions. Lockdown. Yeah, but actually staying at home um, over over the last year, year and a half. So that's that's quite significant. So there's going to have to be a balance struck, yeah. I think, between the perception of civil liberties and then a claimed exemption 
on grounds which are less than clear legally and we'll yeah. find out much more. Well, I think we'll just have to leave that there because there's so many other things to talk about and we could actually talk about Novak Djokovic in this because it's so interesting and there's so many different layers between his background and the understandable perhaps hesitation people from his neck of the woods as well who aren't that keen on vaccines for, you know, very strong historical reasons. There's lots of other things we could talk about. We just we just wouldn't discuss anything else though if we, if we stayed with it but it's definitely something I think we'll be discussing off the ball again in the coming days because I think it's going to keep rolling on for a few more days and clean a story that keeps rolling on and we were talking about you know people looking miserable and locked down at home my god there's a photo in the Sunday Times today of the Man United team looking like they wish they were locked down at home it's a piece by Alison Rudd yeah, and I'm I'm not a big fan. I like Alison Road, but I'm not a big fan of this piece at all. And I'm not a big fan of the way that picture has been used. Uh, my other <laughs> half is a professional photographer, and uh, he always says the phrase, a picture tells a thousand words is the greatest lie because it can catch a moment that doesn't reflect the reality at all. And then do you watch the rugby last night even and, and saw Simon Zebo getting a red card? Yes, it was a red card. But if you, if you saw certain aspects of it, it looked really deliberate. But there's another player of his own team coming across him um, and who seemed to sort of blind him there's a you know this notion that a picture tells the truth and the way that picture was weaponized to use the word again um, against Man U this week I wasn't a big fan of it I think I remember a few years ago a good while ago I remember in a, in a, a famous club game there was a photo taken again it showed somebody pulling on somebody you know very dangerously um, but if you saw it on a video it wasn't quite as dangerous so photos you know can can often not capture a truth. And the way that this photo was used, I know obviously they lost to Wolves and everybody hopped on and piled on. And Alison Rudd's pieces, you know, it's a humorous take on it, if you like. And um, I have to say, I loved it, Cleaner. Did you? Yeah. (laughs) But maybe that's because I wanted to believe what that photo was telling me because this is what I I suppose who cares what I think but this is what I've been saying about Man United for months that manager after manager has been hung drawn and quartered whereas really it's these players who ain't shaping up and I think that picture just so maybe that's just me projecting what I want to see in it myself Kina. so perhaps your <laughs> well, other half is absolutely right <laughs> yeah, well I don't know but look she, she particularly hones in on the fact that it's Phil Jones in the air and you know how he's being energised and, and sort of his reputation you know and how he was seen um, compared to all the superstars around him. So that's her angle on it. And look, it's a cleverly written and it's an opinion piece. Um, and she says that the snap taken tomorrow evening when they walk out against um, Aston Villa is it, uh, that it should be a very different picture. It'll be really interesting to see. Just, all the photographers are going to be queuing up for that one. That's you can get for sure. And just, just to give listeners who might not have seen this piece uh, just a little bit of context, I'll bring you in, Katie, after I just read this out. From left, Cristiano Ronaldo seems distracted by the near certainty that he would not make the final show shortlist for this year's best FIFA men's player. David De Gea appears unable to look the fans in the eye. Nemanja Matic wears the air of one not entirely sure why he's still being picked. Scott McTominay is perhaps remembering being advised by a favourite auntie that if you look serious, then people will take you seriously. Mason Greenwood presumably had no idea that the game at Old Trafford kicked off at half five and had hoped to nap before the usual Monday night start time at 8pm. And it goes on and on. <laughs> what did you make of it, Katie? I, I mean, it, you haven't had time to read all of that. It, probably if you, the first two paragraphs, I think, are tongue-in-cheek, to be honest. And I did yes. find them funny because when you come to it fresh, 
you, you read the description of the player, you look to the photograph, then you go back to the next description of the next player. So it's quite a clever use, I think, of engagement between the text and the photograph. And it does draw you in to what she goes on to say a little bit later, which is a little bit more serious. I, I, to be honest, Cleana, I mean, I enjoy watching Man U and I have to say they would have been one of my um, teams that I would have, have, have supported. I can't say that I'm a diehard Man United fan. But I think she is being funny in the first two paragraphs and then trying to draw us into what is, as you rightly say, a saga now that's been trundled out in, in so many directions. I, I, I tend to look to some of the more quote-unquote serious pieces, I think, for insights, uh, Moira, because it strikes me that of the top six, more or less consistently now in the Premiership, the Glazers are the ones that seem to be more evidently seeking to take something back out of Man United in terms of money invested. Mm. I mean, for many years now, even though it's, it's you know, put up there as the, the echelon of football are around the world, most of the top six are running in debt simply because they've been bankrolled by billionaires. And the Glazers were one of those, but they're running it more akin to the American model, which is that we need to be able to take something back out in terms of our commercial investment. And that clearly off the field is impacting on the fortunes of Man United, not just today and yesterday, but over a period of time now. Now, she doesn't, obviously, Alison Rowe doesn't get into that, but I think that's what interests me more um, because that's what's going to determine the outcome of this on the field of play. Do you think so? That it'll be, it'll be more that kind of stuff going on at the boardroom? Do you think, do you think, do you think it's infiltrating down or do you, think, do, you, do you think the players have any kind of cognizance of it any more than we do? I don't necessarily think the players are paying undue attention to it because let's face it, they have a new manager coming in now and, and as any player, you know that you're, you're seeking to impress moving forward, not least because of the, the poor results. But I think the stability of the club as a whole can impact on a player. And undoubtedly, till they get that resolved off the field and get it on a, a better platform, then that's going to determine, number one, whether Ranić stays on for longer and two, what's happening behind the scenes and whether there is an eye on something that's going to be different in about a year's time because he's been you know, described as somebody that's literally ho- try- trying to hold a ship in light of what's happened so far. So the overall stability will impact on on the uh, the results on the field undoubtedly going forward well I'll tell you one thing I think Clean is right there I think every photographer will be trying to make his week's wages now watching out for Man United over the coming nights I just want to move on because there's just so much you want to cover today and Clean, I know you pinpointed out Dermot Galise's article today that you, you enjoyed it and you enjoyed giving it a read do you want to give the people at home um, an idea of what it was about today I think that was Katie actually, oh was it Katie sorry yeah, I'm wrong I, geez, I'm, I'm implicating you clean I, I apologize <laughs> <laughs> it was, it no, was I it as well. and the headline is what's been seldom won definitely is wonderful victory in the states has been the ultimate challenge for Irish golfers there's a photo of Seamus Power and there's a photo of Leona Maguire as well in action at the Solheim Cup Katie yeah page 21 of the, the Sunday Independent and again I'll say I'm not a keen golfer I enjoy watching golf so I was actually drawn to this piece number one because we finally see an image of a, a female sports person imagine that and, <laughs> and the wonderful job that Dermot does I think of not only demonstrating his historical knowledge of the game but of drawing in a number of threads of how the game has progressed historically and indeed some of the, the focus on the Irish interest on in players going forward so it's a piece that captures what's happening today, as well as the ways in which some players in the early 1900s, male and female, were Grand Slam winners in, in the golfing world, that is, um, across the board. So 
I was really interested when he started to shift from the kind of current focus into um, his 2004 visit. This is Dermot's visit, that is, um, to the US Open, where he saw the performance of 14-year-old Michelle Wee in the, the Sony Open. I mean, when I read that, my first question was, and, and you know, somebody could do a really good piece on this, where is Michelle Wee now? You know, you, you hear of these um, such prolific young players and it actually caused me to go and and have a look and I hadn't realized that Michelle Wee was actually forced to retire because she had chronic wrist injuries now she's now early 30s she's married she had a daughter I think in 2020 Um, whether or not that might have been part of her decision potentially to retire from the game as well but the fact that she was forced to retire owing to, to, to chronic wrist injuries. And of late, she's now, I think, seeking to get back into the game. I don't know how permanent this will be. She's currently ranked, I think, in about the top 600 now. Um, I don't think she's qualified that much recently in terms of getting beyond the, the earlier qualifying rounds. But it took me back to the history of women's golf a little bit more. And indeed, Dermon goes even further then, which was really nice because he, he talks about um, England's Joyce Weatherard winning the first of four successive British British women's amateur titles in the early 1900s, how she benefited from learning the game as a 17-year-old from her brother. I mean, that theme is so repeated in the stories of, of young female sports stars who are supported a lot by male relatives initially, I think, when you're trying to, and you can imagine in that period of time, trying to um, secure that level of success in the game. And then he goes on to talk about male players as well who hold the distinction of um, having those number of milestones or titles and brings it right up to date um, through to an interest, as all of us will have, I think, in the potential successes of McElroy, I should say, this year. It's hard to think uh, he's, he's going to be 33. I mean, we've lived through his sports career because him, like Michel Wee, has come through the sport at at such um, a young age. So it's a really nice read, even if you're not interested in golf. That's what I would say about it, because it brings the, the historical element of the game and the current focus out really nicely. I think, Lena, that's what got me with this piece, because I, I enjoy talking about golf I can't watch a whole weekend of it I just feel life's too short for it but I do love watching you know the final afternoon and I love reading about the people involved in it but to me there were two things about the the opening of it when he quotes um, Dr. Bob Rotella he's a leading sports psychologist and he says you know part one is trying to get to the top and being the best and then part two was finding a way to stay there and then the mentioning of Michelle Wee and it just clicked something in my brain oh god yeah I remember that name and then to realise that she's still only in her very early 30s but it feels like a long time ago and Rory McIlroy as well being another I suppose child protege they're so young and they are living through these elite moments really at a time where we wouldn't put ourselves through that at that age if that makes sense yeah, well, the whole issue of hot housing, you know, young young athletes in sport and and how long they stay in sport afterwards and what happens to them and, and like Michelle, we do they get injured or whatever. And remember, she 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 had massive pressure on her because uh, she was brought in to play in men. You know, she she entered well, not brought in to play, but obviously went to play in men's tournaments and you know got a, got a huge deal of coverage and notoriety from that. Uh, she came back and played actually, I think, in the past year, uh, even if I remember correctly, she's she's been guesting in a few things. Um, yeah, look at. 
Dermot Gleeson is brilliant on golf history. Like he is just the doyen of golf in Ireland, really, in terms of his, particularly in his knowledge of history. And I was really interested, actually, in in another completely different part of that, which shows how interesting the article is. And that was he's talking about um, these guys, these brothers from O'Hare's from Green Ore, um, and how they were such trailblazers in America in the in the 1920s. Um, and I had no idea about them. And it's a really interesting piece about them. Um, uh, you know, and he's talking about Gene Sarazen and people like that, you know, all of that. That's what he does brilliantly, I think. And whenever you read anything by him, that is always going to, you know, but he, he, it's really interesting to point out for him pointing out, it's a bit like music, isn't it? Like the States is where you have to crack it in golf, you know, and and as we've seen with McElroy, um, you know, if it, if it doesn't happen there, we, we, we seem to just undervalue it hugely. That's for sure. And if you have to crack the, the golf in the States, you have to crack the darts in the Ali Pali. And, uh, um, there is a piece, uh, Kalina, I know you picked this one out with Eamon Sweeney and the back page of the Sindo and that's, the headline is Fanfare for the Common Man and there's a great photo of Peter Wright there and um, geez, the darts were great. That, that also feels like a year ago but that was only a few nights ago. <laughs> And I think I think people who were really invested in it and this year, um, March has because so much else was off and there was literally no live sport to watch. So so many people just watching social media. So many people got really invested in in the World Darts Championship and the Ali Pali this year. Um, yeah, it's a really nice piece, and you know he's making the point that um, unlike an awful lot of elite athletes nowadays, we, we people identify with darts players because of who they are and where they come from. And um, you know he goes on to say my. Michael Van Guren was a Tyler Rob Cross an electrician Gary Anderson a builder James Wade worked in the garage and uh, Smith was going to become a joiner um, before staking his all on darts and then he also says um, you know, the, you know he, he describes them he says that they're the people who are up repairing power lines in the middle of a storm fixing phone kids who, who repair boilers sort out your washing machine you know that's why we identify so readily with um, darts players but also because also there is that issue as well of that thing that they're not um, media trained and don't seem to have media handlers and the whole vulnerability if you like this year of Michael Smith and how he reacted to defeat um, and then how Rice dealt with him afterwards, chiving along and trying to b- build up his spirits again. You're just saying like that's what people really identify with in sport and I think he's right. I felt as well, like I was just thinking when I was reading this because I read this piece after the Dermot Gleese piece and I was thinking the same kind of thing about darts. I wouldn't have an in-depth knowledge of it but I enjoy watching it when it's on. And Katie, I was kind of thinking perhaps could golf learn something about this? I mean, darts is great. It's very similar, you know, with the psychological contest between two players. But mm-hmm. like, could golf perhaps learn and maybe just become quicker or make the rounds a bit slower or shorter? I know people thinking sacrilege now that I've said this but it was great TV viewing for the common person. You didn't need to know much to enjoy it, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But I suppose remember that we're we're talking about two two very different sports there with very different class backgrounds, Moira. Mm, so absolutely, I mean, yeah. The, the the sentence I think by Eamon Sweeney, it's towards the end of the article. Um and Clean, I'm sure you've noticed this as well. It, it really I enjoyed it and it, it struck that chord for me about the class differences. And he says, one plumber will always be worth ten thousand social media influencers. <laughs> and it, it you know brings out really nicely that that kind of sense of connection, the unfetteredness of the connection, not only between the fans and the players, but as you say, Maura, between the players themselves and and in some ways, it's not surprising because the trajectory of darts has taken a very different trajectory to other sports. It owes its origins to working class pubs and the social clubs of England. Um, 
its association with the pub has, some might argue, would actually held back its recognition. And, and the game that we've seen today over the last few days is actually a reflection of the fact that the two biggest organisations, the British Darts organisation, split essentially from what is now the Professional Darts Corporation, or you, you, know, you might think of it as World Darts, in a sense. Um, it waxed and waned its popularity over the course of the 20th century, particularly in England, um, in and around the 70s and 80s. And that's what essentially led to this split, where you now see these kinds of players pursuing and being able to pursue this kind of career under the Professional Darts Corporation brand. As it were, I mean, I also went from this to some of the other pieces, and I know we won't have time, Maura, to discuss them today, for instance, around cynicism in the GA and around some of the pieces mm. about the treatment of referees. Mm. And I do wonder whether moving forward, if if we're all in agreement and, and we're, we place emphasis on sport and its potential to be able to do more than simply sport itself. In other words, that it's more than just performance. We, we spoke earlier about connections, about social capital, about social mobility, for instance. I wonder whether we're reaching a time over the next decade where we're actually going to have to think about almost respect marks to be awarded for uh, competition, you know, whether it's club hurling, football, rugby, and all the sports that, that we cover here, as well as at international level, because I was particularly concerned by another piece um, in the referee's report, you know, talking about and recording some of the abuse that he received in a in a club Gaelic Games match. And I think it is about time that we, we look to that to be able to reward and offer incentives to sports clubs, communities, um, essentially the provinces in rugby or a commercial outfit, but ways of incentivizing us to be able to maintain that focus on the fact that there is more than simply performing and winning. Mm. I, and that I, might well have to be a pilot or a test case at some point going forward. But you are seeing this unfettered love and connection really in darts, precisely because it's probably maintained its connection right back to its working class roots, much more than some of the other sports that we've discussed so far. But but that notion as well, Maritrasa, of you know that your sporting heroes are people that you see in everyday life. They come in through your door, they work in your house, or you know, you meet them on the street or they serve you across the counter. It just there's a there's a really interesting link there with the GA as well, I think. Though I think that that element of of inter senior intercounty GA perhaps has gone in recent years simply because it has become such a game a game so dominated by by young men in their 20s and a lot of them students you know but there was always that was always I feel why we felt that uh, GA players men and women were so special and also media management as well Kleena it's hard yes, to access them. yes yeah. yes and man, and also managers managing teams as if they're managing Man United and making sure that nobody speaks out of turn and all of that which I've seen you know come from the men's game into the women's game and I think at a loss to us as supporters as well because so much of it is sanitized now so but it does it did strike me there are there are comparisons but it, it does make you think as well and even Katie's talking about it Philip Lanigan has pieces a few pieces there as well about cynicism in the GA um, uh, in relating they're, they're talking about in relation to the club finals at the moment um, you know the GA is a changed place now as well you know but it was it is interesting how many people were touched by the darts this year and I think particularly got involved with it because there was so little uh, live sport on elsewhere well there's plenty more to talk but we do have to take a very short break. Do stay with us. We'll have more of the paper review after a few more minutes.
Faltarash to Off the Ball this afternoon with me, Maura Trasa. We're at, in the middle and coming near the end now of the Sunday paper review and I'm delighted to be joined by Kleena Foley and Dr Katie Liston. We, we've discussed so many uh, subjects and it's, I love actually mornings like this when the papers cover so much but unfortunately you find yourself stretched going, oh this was good and that was good and this was really interesting. But I think we were all taken by an article written by Shane McGrath in the Mail on Sunday um, and maybe it's because of the photo of the player smiling at us, the, the women's national team smiling at us or what, I don't know. But the headline is Opportunity Awaits Cleaner. The next 12 months will be hugely challenging for Irish sport, but there will be no shortage of drama and intrigue alongside. And what more does a journalist want than loads of sport, but loads of drama and intrigue as well to go along with it? Yeah, and I mean, I, I suppose one of the things I'd be disappointed about today, I know we're doing a, a common, or a, a, not a man special, but, uh, you know, it is still surprising when you open papers and see so few images and stories about women. Like 14 women went, uh, started a new professional uh, season down in Australia this weekend playing Aussie Rules. And it is surprising that not one of the papers would do feature on that, or uh, Sunday papers would look at that in any great detail where you have time to look at stuff in detail. But yeah, his piece is about just generally Covering all of the things that are going to happen in the year ahead, the GA calendar, the shortened GA calendar, Shane is for it, and he's saying, you know, there's a lot of people coming out of Woodwork now giving out about it. Um, he 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 likes it. He's talking about the importance of Kevin Potts's appointment to the to in the RFU and where and how he will lead the game from now on. Um, and uh, and not just in relation to the women's game clearly but of the men's game as well um, he's looking at the the two soccer teams where they'll go in the next year the two national senior soccer teams um, talks about athletics um, and he mentions the appointment of Una May and I was really surprised um, Una May has, Dr Una May has just become the new Sport Ireland and her, her appointment she John Tracy was there for 22 years he was originally 21 and then another one added because the Olympics was moved but she was appointed um, and her uh, the, the sports council announced her appointment at 5 o'clock on Friday evening and said she'd be available for interviews at a later date I just thought it's a really strange time like I just don't know why would you why would you bury that you know five o'clock on Friday evening we know we work in the media you know everything is pre-planned and uh, why not hold it to next week and do it in a big fanfare why why was it done then I just think that's very unusual and I was a little bit surprised at how she was announced um, but she is in a position you know governance you know we're, we're falling over governance and sports stories whether it's here or abroad over the last few years and sports Ireland, like it or not, is the governance, is the people who oversee the governance of a lot of stuff that has ended up, um, you know, in political committees in the last few years in this country. So she has a very important role and I hope to see um, uh, more of her. Uh, but I just thought it was an unusual way to do it, but he mentions it. Yeah. Katie, it's, it's a great appointment. I think I think uh, Dr. Una May is a very capable woman and knows her stuff inside out. That's not to say it's not going to be a challenging job for her because it is a vast appointment with huge responsibility yeah but it's nice Moira to also see somebody who is bringing a a research focus through in their own professional career as well and it's not by any means to denigrate what John Tracy has achieved but in the the 20 years or 20 plus years since the establishment of what was firstly the Irish Sports Council of 1999 and then it became Sport Ireland we have seen a gradual change in how that governance organisation and the same here in the north for Sport Northern Ireland has approached sport. So there's essentially a professionalisation of structures. Now, looking at the way in which Una's immersion in the organisation from the beginning across a range of 
pathways or practices within the organization. She certainly has a depth of knowledge from, from across all of those changes and moving forward she clearly has demonstrated amongst a range of very capable um, candidates that she was the best candidate for for that position. It's interesting, Maura, because we now have, north and south of the border, we've got two female leaders of the the main governance organisations for sport on the island, Antoinette McKeown, Sport Northern Ireland, Uname, Sport Ireland. We have a female leading the Olympic Federation of Ireland, Sarah Keane. We have a female leading the Federation of Irish Sports, Mary. And I think if there is a time now when we can start to try to connect some of the changes that are happening on the field of play in terms of the growth of girls and women's participation with changes off the field of play, this decade has to be the decade where by the end of it, and hopefully we're with you, you know, in uh, 2030, Cleon and I, and saying, do you know what? It was a great decade and we're no longer frustrated at seeing the imbalance in media coverage, at seeing the lack of commitment to bringing women through to senior leadership positions, at the potentially gendered imbalanced focus in policies that are blind to some of the challenges that face female sports people as opposed to male sports people. That, I think, will be the enduring achievement of this particular decade. And it's a very exciting time to see what UNA can achieve now, not only from the gendered perspective, but across all of these different elements. I think there's going to be challenges for Sport Ireland because for the Irish economy, for the economy here in the North, which is very reliant on the subvention from Westminster, there's not going to be the same amount of money that can be committed to elite sport given the very heavy tax burden there will be from the pandemic. So the the extent to which we can continue to invest in these future sports stars, North and South, is going to be it's going to be held back a little bit by that. And that will be a challenge for Una, I think, to maintain the commitment of the Irish government to ensuring that they can they can continue to fund and card the athletes that they wanted. They've already identified clearly for the next Olympic cycle as well. That's it, Clean, isn't it? Because it's one challenge doing it from the top down. The other challenge is then from the bottom up. And I think even when we have these very capable women heading up very important organisations, and I know most of them are only there a year or two, and as with Una May, brand new, um, you still need to bring the grassroots along with you. So you still need to find people at the lower levels, for the want of a better phrase, to be able to push through that kind of policy as well. And that won't be easy, Cleena. You know this yourself. You've covered so many sports from the most elite to the most grassroots. You know how it works. Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about Una May is, I mean, she she's a sports scientist by qualification herself, but but actually, and she, she really um, put the whole of the Irish anti-doping um, program together which is seen as as a as a, an exemplar internationally but she also for in more recent years actually her her, her main work has been in the area of mass participation and in, in getting sport grassroots sport together so that's going to be interesting i think uh, like shane talks about some of the challenges she has in in relation to elite sport uh, irish boxing still has um issues in terms of governance and there's an ongoing row there that she's going to have to um help to solve um and he also talks about the difficulty for sports like basketball and sports that have been so badly hit by COVID in the last few years and if it continues how they're going to help that but actually um, that general thing of general participation is something that she's already really interested in to be honest I don't care uh, what gender she is uh, what I want is people at the top of, of these sporting organisations to be really capable people professional people who have a good uh, handle on their um, on their 
on on their remit and I and I think that um, given everything she's done to date I was very critical of Sport Ireland for a long time in how they handled women in sport because I felt that they for a long time up until 2019 really handed it back to gave grants to organisations and said what are you going to do okay here's money you go do it but only then did they put together an actual policy so only in recent years have they had an actual policy for women in sport and that is very very important and that is now guiding everything else that's happening in other sports as well and that gives them I think the right now to ask sports what are you doing where are your initiatives and you know they seem to be much much more hands on and they've employed people to work specifically in the area like Nora Stapleton so their whole attitude to women's sport is, is very different but as as a as a person in, in a job at the top of that organisation, the thing to me is that she is a really professional, smart woman and knows the knows the area very well. Speaking of areas we all know very well, um, we're coming up to kind of to the end of the paper review now, and sure, it wouldn't be a discussion on off the ball or any kind of sports program unless we were talking about the GAA and GAA structures and who's retiring and who's not playing. And I know, uh, Katie, you touched upon it like when you were speaking about referees and things you'd like to add onto your wish list. We have a wish list as well, Cleaner from Pat's Blan, but before we get into his wish list, I think the other GAA constant in all the papers this weekend photos of um, Stephen Cluxton everywhere did you ever see a more low fanfare retirement of somebody who changed the absolute face of a game from participation to kids never wanting to be goalkeepers now they're fighting over wanting to be goalkeepers and he's just walked away from the spotlight without even announcing he's doing it yeah, I, like, I, I laughed when I saw this paper say the story today was that Cluxton wasn't coming back. I, I think that that is, you, you were right in your introduction saying that's really not news. The really big news to me today, and, and as particularly for Dublin football fans, was was that, that Daisy Farrell said yesterday he totally ruled out that McCaffrey or Paul Mannion would come back this year and put that on the record. And also that Paul Mannion had, had to have some knee surgery over the weekend, which may rule him out for uh, the rest of Kilmacud's involvement in the club championships. But um, yeah, uh, look, at, uh, I would. I was uh, the one that caught my eye today. I, actually, I was at an Auburn Cup game yesterday, um, and even just watching the kickout strategies of Westmead and Kildare, like it's become a sport in itself now. And all around me, people were talking about the goalkeepers. You know, as you said, a role that nobody ever wanted to play before, but now it's seen as so integral. So you know, there's no doubt Cluxton is such a seminal figure in the history of the GA now, um, um, but one that chose to do all of his talking on the on the pitch, obviously. Yeah, Katie, it's it's rare that somebody, because you'd be aware, obviously, of how the different structures work and how sport, even the GAA, despite it being an amateur sport, we know a lot of professionalism is in it, but never seen somebody to shy away so much from any kind of attention, but yet become such an enigma, literally just down to because he probably epitomised the best of what you've seen in elite athlete, which is try to make yourself better, but also, crucially, not harming anyone else while you're doing it and looking after yourself. And can you imagine, I mean, at the, at the elite level, especially, and the competitive structures within Dublin compared to other counties, can you imagine the, the level at which he had to maintain consistency in that performance? And even alone, if I think of just probably his potential commitment to strength and conditioning over that period of time, simply to be able to be at the top level when, when required. I mean, it's nice to see players, I think, who are able to, to do that without searching the limelight. I see the one observation I'd make potentially about his change on the game. I don't think it was just him as an individual, though obviously he was able to exert that because of the profile of Dublin. But his ability to be able to utilize the goalkeeping position more than what it was previously was was a function of how the game itself was changing. 
um, and how it was being played differently compared to, and I know we'll, we'll come on to Pat Spillane. Is it Pat Spillane? I think, yeah, shortly. I mean, yeah. how the style of the game, for, for instance, when Pat Spillane was changing was very different to how it's been played now, where possession is of the absolute utmost. And in fact, to go back is as important as going forward. And that's why the focus then on the goal, goalkeeping position is potentially the start of that movement and hopefully the retention of possession for a period of time became so crucial. Now, all that said, he, of course, had to be able to then excel at those particular skills and the precision with which he was able to do that, delivering consistently and picking out players and indeed showing that the goalkeeper could make a contribution simply beyond standing on the goal line and scoring at the other end. That, I think, for me, is what stands out more as well because the strength and conditioning that he went through meant that he was the go-to player to score from distance. And that's quite a standout feature when you think about the other powerful players that there would have been and are um, out on the, the field of play. But yet we now look to something like the dead ball specialist that is the goalkeeper moving forward. It's funny, I'm just looking at Pat Spillane's piece here and I love one of the sub-headlines is I don't make New Year's resolutions, nor do I give up stuff for Lint, but the GAA needs a fresh start. <laughs> I love that. But he also has like the list here and uh, playing, he's a few different head, he- headings and headlines. He has playing rules and regulations, water breaks, no replays, the blood rule, red card not applying in extra time, split season, the Talton Cup, COVID-19 restrictions. There's so much there, Kalina. Um, where do we start? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, first of all, I, I, always, I always think of it like everyone, like nowadays people like to paint, paint Pat who was a brilliant player as, you know, the, you know when he's on television as everybody's crazy uncle, you know, and oh, the game's changed now and, you know, he hasn't a clue. And, and I think if you read his columns as I do regularly in Sunday World, he actually makes very cogent, logical uh, and well-argument, uh, well-argument um, arguments for things. And this piece is actually really good and I, I agree with quite a lot of the things that are in it and I think it's well worth anybody reading it just to see what it is he's against so um, or why he thinks it's illogical but like he he, he he looks at a load of things that are in the J and says you know we're changing things we're changing that but actually these are the ones that we have never looked at and why haven't we looked at those and one of them is the famous red card not applying in extra time the examples even recently in club games why, why that seems a crazy one Um the no replays one is one I think that has maybe passed people by um, in terms of this, this coming season. Um, and he's saying, you know, um, penalties, penalty takings are complete lotteries, and that that actually that's going to be an important one as the as the thing works on. I agree with him on the water breaks. I don't know why they're still there. Um, and he's ta- he still hates the, the the mark, which a lot of people don't as well. The one I, I'm amazed that they haven't addressed yet, actually, when they want to change the nature of the game as well, is that you can score with the hand. I still can't understand why that's still there. And I'm amazed that that has not been brought up at a special congress at some stage. If you took hand passing, if you took uh, fisted points out of uh, men's football at the moment, I think the game could be very different. Um, so he goes through a load of them. And one of them is a, is a really valid one as well. The Talton Cup, which is brought in this year, Year, which is meant to give um, you know uh, more prestige, if you like, to to um, to a competition for lower graded teams. He, he, I've seen this pointed out by other people already. Already, I mean, originally that that was oh the final would be played with the All Ireland. In fact, it's not already that has been downgraded. It's going to be played with an All Ireland semi final. So he goes through a load of different things, um, and he is not for the split season. That's for sure. Um, and he, in in his argument against it, he says there um, because of the new, the way the new system is, um, a minority of the country's elite young footballers and hurlers we expected for their club. Um, 
their counties and their colleges this month and he says worse still there are a total of 190 games scheduled for the months of February and March which is the worst month um, traditionally in Ireland weather wise where there's going to be 99 men's matches championship matches in the months of May, June and July um, and then the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the year like we're going to have the men's, the men's season will be finished um, before the August bank, bank holiday so look it's well worth reading um, you know and it's a classic like he, he holds strong opinions but some of them actually I think sometimes he argues very well for it's funny how when I was reading through them it, it, it just goes to show how easily I could be swayed as a person I suppose I'd read them I go oh yeah 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 and then I go and read somebody else's opinion and go oh jeepers yeah that makes sense Katie you'd have a good kind of I suppose outline on the effect of a season the length of a season the split season what do you make of it is Pat Spillane right should it be gotten rid of or is it should it be here and should it be here to stay I think the wider question and the purpose of, of proposals like this, Mara, and there's different ramifications of it in different sports, to be honest. It's ultimately, how can you sustain and support players at that level? And that, for me, has got to be the guiding principle here because there are genuinely real concerns about burnout across so many sports now, particularly at pinch points where you think about a transition, for instance, from being an 18 or 19-year-old. In this example, Pat Spillane was talking about men. But in women's sports, that transition can take place a little bit younger. Mm. Um, and I remember myself, you know, being a very tall, strong 16-year-old and even sometimes younger now today being selected to play at senior level. So those pinch points around burnout and enabling players to play across a full year and indeed season after season, that, that's what's driving this. The principle of a split season makes sense for that reason. But you've got other factors that are impinging on this because you're, the, the GA is trying to manage more than one sport in the calendar it's trying to maintain the fan base you've got a commercial impetus coming in now from coverage so you have a state broadcaster or broadcasters versus you know commercial interests and all of that is not easily to resolve it's going to take a very coordinated effort to make sure that the players interests drive all of this and looking at it from a distance i would have to say that i don't think the players interests are first and foremost in all of this and that's probably not surprising when you think about the extent now to which the GPA is starting to lobby very explicitly for that reason. I, I think as well, Marge, has it, the, the, I mean, the notion of giving time to clubs has obviously been a factor in this decision as well. And I don't think any of us will probably know where we come down and which side of this argument until we've had a full season of it. Um, but it actually reflects also, there's some really interesting pieces in the paper today about the Africa Cup of Nations and it's, it's what Katie's talking about, the pinch point mm. for, for resources and when do you time competitions. There's a lot of pieces in the paper today about the African Cup of Nations and about how it has to be when it is and how clubs have to suffer and I think if people are interested in that, you'll get lots in the paper about that today. But I don't think we're, I really don't think we're going to know until the season is finished. How does it all work out? And particularly if it's if it's hit by weather or hit further by COVID, that yes. will affect it. It's interesting as well, Kleena, because it strikes me it's a bit similar. We remember the arguments people being made, oh, county football and hurling is the showpiece and that's what everybody wants to tune in and see and pay money to go and watch. And it turns out once we showed more club championship games on TG Cad, <coughs> excuse me, and then also on other channels like RTE and Air Sport and all them, people watch them as well. There's a bit of a parallel there with ladies football and women's sports. People, oh, nobody wants to watch that. And it turns out once they were actually broadcast, people did watch them. 
Yeah, and I, I, I was writing a piece about this um, for the examiner before Christmas and uh, talking to Sue Anstis, who had a very interesting book this year uh, on women's sport. Um, the, the, I, I always felt that the way to that the way we have to get bums on seats to grow women's sport because that's how you get money into the game, right? But actually, the the growth of women's uh, Super League football in England uh, in the past during COVID um, and the viewing figures have actually persuaded sponsors to come on board. So. So it, it actually may not technically be bums on, spe- on seats. It may be eyes on screens that now drives it. You still have to you have, still have to grow your audience, but it may be about growing an audience a different way. And I think TV's TG Cahar's coverage of club club games and their coverage of other sports this year, whether it was AFLW or, or Irish basketball, has um, has very interesting implications. You know, you have to get the fans there sometimes, but it may not be through actual bums on seats. And COVID, in 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 a way, has actually arguably uh, helped some sports and um, some women's team sports as well but also some minority sports in a way that wasn't actually expected. Katie, we're running out of time here. I know you had a few other articles on your list that if you had if you had your way we'd be talking about them as well. We'd be here till 7 o'clock tonight and we'd be thrown off air. Are there any other recommendations you'd want to give our listeners to be hunting out for this afternoon if they're if looking for something to read? I think that just that, that interplay between the, the focus on cynicism in the GAA, which was just a nice article, and then some of the concerns that I raised um, about the uh, treatment of, of referees, they're, they're a, an important theme, I think, to bear in mind going forward for, for the future of sport, whether it's eyes on screen or bums on seats, because I think um, referees are increasingly being seen as the, the paragon or almost you know the female and male resistance to what players are seeking to achieve on the field of play. But I think we need to take a step back and try to learn from sports that have got that balance right as to why that is happening and how we can incentivize. So those those couple of pieces, I think, are interesting. Probably the overall reflection, Maura, from today, um, I was disappointed, like Cleana, um, that I didn't see more focus on women's sports. So I think looking forward over the next year, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Eileen Gleeson's going to get on at Glasgow City. Um, yeah. We worked with Glasgow City more than 10 years ago now when they were a club on the rise. They came here to Belfast to play in the Women's Champions League qualifying tournament. And you could see even then the extent to which their investment in the structures off the field of play were going to bear fruition. And they're doing that. And not surprisingly, Eileen's all, already made some important signings. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the Women's Euros as well, even though the Republic aren't in, Northern Ireland are. And that will be interesting to see in terms of the development of women's soccer on the island as to what level the the team can be competitive because it will be a benchmark. And I know the Republic were disappointed considering they lost to Ukraine and yet Northern Ireland were able to go on and and beat Ukraine. Probably of interest as well, just one last one. It's not covered in the ROI papers. (laughs) But it will come up into the future. We now have the first professional women's soccer player on the island at club level here in the north. Um, and the, the playing population is smaller here. It's not particularly bigger in the south, but that there are differences. And I think that's going to be important in terms of how both international teams will be into the future because the gap has been at the national league level and there's been a call for a long time for investment in women's club soccer so it's starting to happen here in the north 
and and let's see what happens for the FAI if they're able to get that on the right footing as well. I think it's just great that you've just been able to list out some really tangible things for us to look forward to and we're not just sitting here talking about I wish this happened, I wish that happened. We wish lots would happen, ladies, but thankfully it does appear that they are happening and thanks so much that you guys made this paper review happen over the last hour and a half or so and gave us your time in Shaw, Ed Nolikman, Dr Katie Liston, August Kleena Foley, thank you very much for your time and thank you for joining us for the paper review. Now we need to go and take a quick break and we'll be back very shortly.